On today's episode of Discovery Matters, Dodi, we're going to continue our journey exploring therapies that are making comebacks, kind of like ACDC. Therapies that had their moment in the limelight and then drifted and eclipsed or misunderstood, just disappeared, and now they're hitting the headlines again. The one-hit wonders of biotechnology. Exactly, but they're coming back like ACDC with back in black, storming the stage. <laughs> So last time we met and spoke to Professor Eric Vermethen about psychedelics and their uses in treating psychotrauma and PTSD. What do you have for us today, Connor? Okay, so this one is super cool. You may have heard that medicine as a whole is facing being thrown back into the 19th century because of antibiotic-resistant bacteria, right? Hospital-acquired infection, MRSA, and so on. Well, today we are talking phage, specifically bacteria phages that might just have the answer to this health crisis that would make COVID look like, well, a bit of a head cold, frankly. I look forward to that on today's episode of Discovery Matters. Meet Anton Peleg. He is Professor of Infectious Diseases and Microbiology and the Director of the Department of Infectious Diseases at the Alfred Hospital and Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. And Anton is literally all about phages. It's a simple virus that infects bacterial cells specifically. So it's not like other viruses like COVID, which everyone knows about, that infects human cells. On one hand, phage are highly specific in terms of what they will infect. They're highly specific for a certain type of bacterial species and even a strain within that species. So the benefits of this is that if you find a phage that's active against a bacteria, that phage won't have untoward consequences or hurt other healthy bacteria, such as your microbiome in your gut or your skin. So it doesn't have the same broad effects that you might see with an antibiotic. And that's a real benefit. And phage therapy goes way, way back. I think some of the descriptions about active phage dates back to the late 1800s. And the fascinating thing was that it was, you know, river water from the Ganges. People noticed that it had activity against Vibrio cholera. So there was a lot of cholera at the time, but they made a link that people who I think drank or had something from the Ganges River had less cholera. Which, you know, is a bit counterintuitive because you think that the water might have been dirty and contaminated. And then it wasn't until early in the 1900s that a Professor de Heray basically identified that these bacteria were susceptible to infection from a small organism that they called bacteriophage. And then they characterized that as being small viruses that attack bacteria. Phage therapy took hold maybe in the early 1900s through to the 1940s for treating gastrointestinal infections such as cholera, dysentery and skin infections. And the phages were being used to kill bacteria that caused these infections. But then came along our favourite poster child of modern medicine, penicillin. Well, I'd say penicillin plus sanitation maybe. But okay, fair, penicillin was a world-changing discovery. 
That's right. And then all of a sudden it ruined it for everyone in the phage community. <laughs> so all of a sudden you had this really simple way of treating all sorts of infections. It was easily, you know, it was produced well. It was a single product. It had good stability. It was a tablet form. Was, you know, so all of these benefits led to the reduction in interest and work on phage. Does that mean phage therapy really got put on the back burner during this time? Well, it didn't completely disappear. There were pockets of fans. There were some diehards, right? Clinics with links to the early 1900s researchers who continued to work on phage. So the Republic of Georgia, the Alavia Institute and the uh, Ludwig Institute in Poland, they actually, some of the founders there were people who had links and were students of the groups who founded. So they had a, a, a real interest in continuing to pursue phage. Okay, so let me check if I understand this right. Each phage corresponds with a particular bacteria strain. So what is it that happens when you've got a bacterial infection, do you have to go looking for the exact corresponding phage? Yeah, that's exactly right. You go on a phage hunt. Obviously, you need the bacteria that's causing the infection. And then we obtain a lot of different natural sources. So whether it be river water from rivers or streams or sewage, soil. Phage are one of the most common kind of organism in our environment. But we have examples where we have not been able to find a natural phage from our sources that attack some other bacteria that we want to try to target. And that can be, you know, there are certain bacteria that can be much more problematic than others. There is a whole idea of engineering a phage. So, you know, actually designing and developing a phage, that takes a lot of time and a lot more work, but that probably is something for the future. And part of Anton's research has been driven by his experience working in the Alfred Hospital. Yeah, so we've been working on a few different bacteria and phage acting on them. One is called Acinetobacter, and that's a type of bacteria that is more commonly found in hospitals and causes hospital outbreaks. But it was also the most common bacteria found in army personnel where in the Iraq-Afghanistan war, it caused wound infections. And it has a tendency to become very resistant to traditional antibiotics. And it's even can be resistant to all our available antibiotics. But we did some interesting studies that showed the importance of combining phage with traditional antibiotics. So this, the synergy of the combination appears to be important because the phage changed some of the surface characteristics of the bacteria and that can make it more susceptible to a traditional antibiotic. For four and a half years, Anton and his team have been collecting the sort of superbugs that just might like terrify you, right? That have been infecting patients in the hospital, storing all of these nasty bacteria in a freezer. And the team have slowly been working through all of them from the most common down to the least common to find the active phage that corresponds to each infectious bacteria. What a huge game of mix and match. And it's so important 
Because like you said earlier, sadly, there is that adage about the best place to get sick is in the hospital. That's exactly right. And, you know, antibiotic resistant bacteria, it's no joke. It's listed as probably one of the singular most important and most challenging risks to global human health. We really need to deal with this because current antibiotics aren't working. So what's exciting here is that Anton and the team are developing a phage library. They're cataloging phages by the bacteria that they attack. So when you identify an infection, you then pick the corresponding phage or a cocktail of phages to unleash on that infection. So we have ready, almost off-the-shelf phage products or phage cocktails that could be used quickly for patients who are very unwell. And even the manufacturing pipeline is patient-oriented. And it starts firstly with the patient because we need to isolate the infection, the bacteria. Once we isolate the bacteria, we then bring that into our lab at the hospital. We identify an active phage from those environmental sources I talked about. And then once you have that active phage, we do some other susceptibility studies. We look at how well it kills the bacteria. So the production part is something that happens with very close, a collaborating partner in this initiative of ours at Monash University. And his name's Jeremy Barr, and he's part of our bacteriophage therapy program. And that involves growing up phage to large concentrations. So to replicate and multiply, phage need to be infecting their own bacterial hosts. I love this idea of fighting an infection with an infection, right? You infect the infector. It's so meta. It's super cool. So the, the phage just basically hijack the cell machinery of the bacteria to reproduce, and then all these millions of phage burst out of the cell. So you grow the bacteria in large volumes in liquid media, you infect them, and then you pass the resultant kind of you know, phage and bacteria soup through filtration steps and sterilization until you get a final phage solution put into small vials which can be sent back to the hospital. So I'm envisioning a bunch of bacterial cells just living it up in a bacterial bioreactor thinking, oh, this is fantastic, everything's going dandy, and then suddenly they're blitzed by phages? And then we use that to go out and destroy bacterial infections in the wild. I know, it's absolutely brilliant. There's just this wonderful circularity to it. And now, like revelation time, I'm going to tell you something personal. I'm actually allergic to penicillin. I did not know that. Oh my goodness. Yep, it's been on my medical records forever. So I think this is fantastic that there is a more specific alternative to penicillin. So I love this, but my story alone isn't enough for Anton and his team to see widespread use of phages. So what exactly are the challenges that Anton and team are going up against? There are a few things. One would be that production process to having facilities that can produce high quality phage at scale, as well as the need for quick turnaround times. Because given the specificity, you know, it's not one product. So you need a production capacity that has fast turnaround times to produce a whole range of different phage. So that's a real challenge from a production point of view. I think the other part that we're globally up against is the regulation of phage. 
What are regulatory bodies classifying phage as? Is it a medicine? Is it a biological? So in Australia, we have actually started a bacteriophage regulatory working group with our Therapeutic Goods Administration, our TGA. So all of these challenges are what we're facing around the world, I think. We've spoken before about how the biopharma industry needs to work more closely with regulators for the benefit of rapid manufacturing and development. So I find it really interesting that Anton is doing just that. Exactly. And despite all the challenges, you've got the clinical community having to learn about this. You've got the regulatory challenges. You've got the manufacturing challenges. Anton is full of hope. When you have to be faced with treating patients with superbug infections that, you know, resistant to all antibiotics or nearly all, you're absolutely driven to find new solutions and ways to treat patients who are in very desperate situations. And we are seeing this more and more. Not a day that doesn't go by that I don't hear or have to be involved in a challenging scenario of a bacterial infections that are resistant to, you know, almost all our antibiotics. And it's a really exciting space to be in because the science is intersecting with the clinical world and we're learning both from the patients, the phage, the bacteria, all the way back to what we do in the lab. And then the lab goes back. It's, it's the beautiful intersect of bench to bedside, bedside to bench. And if we can provide some hope and then hopefully the rigorous clinical evidence that this is a new therapy, that's groundbreaking for where we are. I introduced this topic at the start of the episode as being not just fascinating, but one that has real impact on the future treatment of infections and more widely on human health. We need to be a lot more aware of the imminent threat of antibiotic-resistant bacteria and those avenues that are being explored in treating them. I think what is really crucial, this awareness of antimicrobial resistance in bacteria and the significance of the problem absolutely needs to get out there. How do we communicate that best? You know, we were part of an important study in the Lancet end of last year, which looked at the burden of antimicrobial resistant bacterial infections. And it showed that there were just under 5 million deaths in 2019 associated with bacteria resistance to antibiotics. So if you put that on a scale of all causes of death, that's the third highest cause of death after stroke and heart disease. I mean, it is huge. Wow, I didn't realize that. That is a killer. Phage is obviously one part of an alternate therapeutic, but there's others that we need to tackle for this problem. It's really exciting. I love the fact that phage therapy, like ACDC, have gone through this process of kind of drifting away. They've come back with an amazing album. Everybody's rediscovering them and going, yay, phage, digging out the T-shirts and saying, yeah, I was there at the beginning. <laughs> I knew them when. Yeah, exactly. So thanks to Anton for explaining this extraordinary research to us and really good luck to him for pushing it forward. Well, that is a big thing to learn this week. And since every day is a school day, let's get into some more things that we learned this week. You go first, Connor. Okay, so you know how everyone has been super excited about 
RNA, right? Yeah. And, you know, it can be used for all manner of things. It's one of the basic building blocks of life, and it's going to create all these marvelous therapies that are going to allow us to cure all sorts of um, difficult-to-treat diseases and so on. Well, guess what? RNA has been discovered in space. I saw this one. It's fantastic. I think it's just absolutely marvelous. But tell us more. So exactly this was which rover, like NASA went up there, or what's the story? Well, actually, it was not NASA. It was Japan's Hayabusa 2 spacecraft. And the paper is in Nature Communications. And what they have discovered in samples returned to Earth by the spacecraft is a precursor to DNA called uracil. And it's like extraordinary that it's present in an extraterrestrial environment. You know, it'd been found in meteorites and so on and so forth, but it's potentially the first clearest piece of evidence that some of the foundations of life may be found outside of this, you know, wonderful blue globe that we live on called the Earth. So it's not that the aliens are coming, it's that that the aliens are us. Well, that's quite a leap, right? So all we're saying (laughs) is that the building blocks that form the structure of RNA and are essential to protein creation in all living cells, they are found both on Earth and not on Earth. Right. So we've got to talk to what the actual evidence really gives us. But there is obviously an origin of life story that suggests that RNA predated DNA and proteins and that ancient organisms that relied on RNA for the chemical reactions associated with life, potentially those precursors could have come from an asteroid impact or so on. But all we know is that they exist in both places. So cool. That's so cool. Anyhow, what have you learned? Well, mine is a little bit simpler. You remember that you talked about what you learned from your daughter and the eye mask. Mm -hmm. My what I learned is also related to family and it is related to bacteria and it is related to attitudes about bacteria. So it's really on topic for our episode this time. Okay. We took the dog to the vet. So Peter Barker has a clean bill of health, but the vet looked at his mouth and said, huh, this guy really likes his sticks and tennis balls, doesn't he? But he's a dog, so of course. Yes, he does. But tennis balls are bad for a dog's mouth. Oh my God, how bad? Well, the fabric on the tennis ball, turns out, can wear down the teeth they blunt the canine teeth on the bottom jaw. Right, okay. So it's like chewing on sandpaper if you're a dog, right? Exactly, that's it, Mm -hmm. that's it. Oh, just that thought. So I come home and I tell Lars, you know, like we got to quit with the tennis balls for Peter because the vet says they're bad. And I start Googling, like, why are tennis balls bad for the dog? And Lars is like, hmm, okay, well, that's information. And he searches instead... How bad can it be with tennis balls for dogs? Okay, so he's looking for the worst possible scenario. and You're looking for just data. Well, also, like, I accept the authority of the vet, right? Oh, it's bad. The vet says it's bad, accept that it's bad. And Lars is like, well, let's not exactly accept authority 100%. Let's investigate. Well, there you go. And this just really describes, it describes me and Lars in a nutshell. And the different attitudes to being told 
information by someone in a position of authority. Correct. Absolutely marvellous. And listen, that really does point us to the fact that, you know, when you hear about a discovery in a newspaper or you read about a discovery online or, dare I say it, you're watching a TikTok, it's important that you don't leap to assumptions that, like, RNA came from space and we're all aliens. Exactly. Keep that sense of curiosity. Curiosity and distinctly empirical thinking around what science is really learning every day. Because as we know, uh every day is a school day. Every day is a school day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Discovery Matters. Our producer is Beth Armit Brewster. Editing, mixing, and supervision by Ulrike Svensson and Tom Henley from Banda Productions. Music from Epidemic Sound. My name is still Dodie Axelson. And I am still Connor McKechnie. And make sure you rate us on Spotify, whichever platform you use to discover your podcasts. We'll see you when we come back with another episode of Discovery Matters. Discovery Matters.